0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Neufeld. Today we begin a series called From Creation to Creation. It's a one-week series focusing on some of the primary themes of the book of Revelation. So let's not delay any further as we join Dr. Neufeld now.
1: The Bible tells but one story. It's a story that begins with the one true God creating all things. The very first sentence in the Bible states, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then very near the end of the Bible, in the second last chapter, Revelation 21 verse 1, the Bible says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And then just like the beginning of the Bible, in which a description is given of God creating the first creation, the Bible ends with a description of the new creation, complete with a promise that the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. That's why I've decided in introducing a future series on the book of Revelation that we should call this short series From Creation to Creation, from the first creation to the new creation. Everything in between, from the fall of man, to the choosing of a holy nation, to the coming of Christ, to the establishment of the church, to the end of this present age and the beginning of the one to come, everything tells but one story, leading us from the first creation to the second and the final creation. Since this is an introduction to the book of Revelation, we will, of course, focus on how the book leads us from Christ's message to the churches to the promise to make all things new. That's been God's intention from the beginning. According to Isaiah 43, verse 7, God created all things for His glory. And according to Habakkuk 2, verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, that would mean that a time is coming in which not one square centimeter of this earth will not be fully aware of the knowledge of God's loveliness, his beauty, his attributes. The day is coming when everything will cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Indeed, that's the hope of the saints. Psalm 72 verse 19 says, blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Now, when the earth was first created, we're told that it originally was formless and void and that darkness was over the face of the deep. The words formless and void speak of a reality in which the earth was once like a howling wasteland unfit for human habitation. And then in six successive days, God brought an imposed order onto a chaotic creation And in this orderly creation, he planted a garden and then created and placed a man and a woman in his garden. The unique nature of the creation of man as male and female, created in his own image, with the command that they should be fruitful and multiply, fill the creation, and on his behalf, rule over the creation. So you get a sense in reading Genesis that as human beings multiplied and applied God's rule to every aspect of creation, that the glory of God would become everywhere evident in what human beings did. Now, I know that the fall into sin is a part of this story, but I don't want us to lose sight of God's express design that creation would reflect his awesome splendor. And that human beings would become God's agents in this magnificent enterprise. David expresses this purpose in Psalm 8, verses 3 to 6. He said, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the Son of Man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now, here we have it. First, the sense that the creation overwhelms us with grandeur, and even at first, the sense that next to the vastness and magnificence of what we see, we tend to think that we're nothing. And in a sense, we are nothing. For what is man next to God, and what insignificance is there in us next to the seemingly endless cosmos? But next, David reflects on God's revelation. God has revealed that he has placed all things under the feet of man, man as male and female, man as image-bearer of God, man as the one given the task of ruling over all the works of God's hands. So let's consider the creation. Not long ago, some of us here at Back to the Bible had the unique privilege of joining some of our listeners from across Canada on an Alaska cruise, leaving Vancouver and sailing north. We arrived at Glacier Bay and had the stunning spectacle of watching one of the world's beautiful glaciers calving as large hunks of the glacier were falling into the ocean. See, that glacier is about a kilometer and a half wide and has the height of about a 40-story building. The glacier has an amazing story in that by the year 1916, it had shrunk back by about 105 kilometers from its original size. Now, since that time, the glacier has been making an amazing rebound, growing and thickening dramatically each year, making back the ground that it had once lost. It's a part of the structure and the the symmetry that God has placed into the natural world. I had a David experience as I looked at it. It was so grand and vast that I found myself caught up in the majestic work of my God, filled with wonder and praise, and yet also overwhelmed with the destiny that God in his grace had given to me. But then I remembered that as stunningly beautiful as the earth is, and it still is, that this is a fallen earth. Romans 8:20 reminds us, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. You know, as precious as this earth is, it's still an earth in bondage that awaits for all things to be made new. And that's where the book of Revelation comes in. The time is at hand when all the purposes of God in creating the world in the first place and our place in it, all of this will be fulfilled. And in this, I'm reminded of what C.S. Lewis once wrote about human longings and then about creation. Have a listen to what he said. He said, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desires. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfies it, That does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, And on the other hand, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same, end quote. I think Lewis was right. I think that living in a fallen and cursed creation awakens in us, in all who hope in Christ, that the thing we enjoy and love is but a faint reflection of something that we genuinely desire. The physical beauty of this earth is but a copy, an echo, a mirage perhaps, or a faint whisper of the real thing itself. We can hardly put our finger on it, but the thing we desire is the new heavens and the new earth and the glory of God and finding our place within it. Now in this, I'm reminded of Revelation 4 verse 11. The scene being depicted is the throne room of God in heaven and surrounding the throne are four living creatures, creatures of a kind we've never seen. And among them are 24 elders who are removing their crowns from their heads and falling down before the throne of God. The 24 elders say, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The song of the 24 elders in praise of the glory of the one who created all things is the song that echoes through the entire Bible. And then as we come to the end of Revelation in chapter 21, verse 5. And he who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I make all things new. So when Christians revel in creation, we are reveling in the glory of God and are left with an unfulfilled longing for that which will yet one day be. And it is to this end that I introduce the study of the book of Revelation.
0: following Christ involves offering Him everything. Therefore, it naturally follows that following Christ includes our money and our resources. Well, this month, we're excited to offer you Dr. John Newfeld's entire CD series, God and Money, as our free Bible teaching resource, and, and all you need to do is ask. In this five-message series, Dr. Newfeld describes the advantages of money, its inherent dangers, and how we should manage our money based on an understanding of what the Bible actually teaches. Break down some of the myths and open up your heart and mind as you listen to this important series, God and Money. Ask for your free copy today. All you need to do is visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.
1: there are a number of reasons why many Christians hesitate to study the book of Revelation. For one, most of us know that the book has created a great deal of disagreements among Bible-believing Christians. Some of us are pre-tribulational, others are mid-tribulational, and still others post-tribulational. Then there are the amillennialists and the premillennialists, and then there's the always favorite panmillennialists, those who simply believe that everything is going to pan out in the end. Well, to the most part, pan-millennialists, as they have jokingly called themselves, simply don't want to get into the details. They are content to remain ignorant of the specifics. But when we do that, I think, we betray a lack of interest in the teachings surrounding the second coming of our Lord. There are other reasons why some believers feel uncomfortable with revelation. Some of us know that there have been those who have made a career out of doing nothing but teaching on end times. They'll often have a newspaper in one hand pointing out how today's news is already predicted in the book of Revelation. Want some examples? Well, some Bible prophecy teachers said that when Israel became a nation in 1948, that the prophetic calendar started ticking. Now, of course, they didn't have a verse for that, but some thought they did. And so in Matthew chapter 24, verses 32 to 34, we hear Jesus saying, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation shall not pass away until all these things take place. You know, that one passage has created a great deal of controversy There are those who have argued that the fig tree represents Israel, and therefore, the generation that saw Israel become a nation will not pass away before the second coming of Jesus. Now, there have been those who emphatically stated that a biblical generation consists of 40 years. Now, imagine that. Many Bible prophecy teachers just a short time ago argued that since Israel became a nation in 1948, that Christ would have to have returned by 1988. And when that didn't happen, they said that sometimes a generation is 50 years, and, and that took us to 1998. And at the time of this recording, it's been almost 70 years since Israel became a nation. And here's a little secret that I know. If Christ delays his coming, let's say for 20 years, and it becomes 90 years since Israel has become a nation, so many so called prophecy experts will simply ignore their failed track record and simply go on to new findings in the newspaper proving that Christ's coming is at the door. And those of us who are either blessed or cursed with a memory and remember all the foolish things that have been said, Everything from evidence that the formation of Israel starts the prophetic clock ticking to the year 2000 being the date with destiny, to four blood moons, to the latest Palestinian uprising, to the next bit of trouble in Europe, to the fact that our society is moving to a cashless electronic banking system. See, all manner of people have thrown up their hands in despair. They just don't want to hear this kind of talk anymore. They're tired of all of it never bringing about the soon times of the end. And I, for one, don't blame them. I call this approach to Revelation the science fiction approach. But a study in Revelation doesn't have to lead us down the pathway of endless speculation. We can approach the book of Revelation very much like we approach all manner of other Bible books after all does the book of ephesians or first peter or or the book of luke suggest that we should add to our study all our speculations well of course not and that's why i would want us to approach the book of revelation not with a newspaper in our hand but with the rest of the bible in our hand and what we will find is that revelation is actually filled not with endless speculations but with a host of quotations from the rest of the bible and after the quotations numerous allusions from the rest of the bible is seen rightly we should notice that revelation is a book that masterfully incorporates and summarizes and draws to its completion the entirety of the scripture revelation draws chiefly on nine old testament books they are exodus the psalms isaiah Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Joel, Amos, and Zechariah. Therefore, far more important than finding out what prognosticators are saying about the future is the importance of discovering what these key Old Testament books are really saying. Dennis Johnson, in his Commentary on Revelation, points out that in 1845, a Commentary on Revelation came about as the result of a remarkable set of events. The author, Moses Stewart, who produced the 1845 commentary in two large volumes, did so only after many years of study, not in the book of Revelation, but after ten years of studying the Hebrew prophets in the Old Testament. Only after that did he feel qualified to study John's revelation since John himself made such wide use of the prophets themselves. Let me quote from Dennis Johnson. As Moses Stuart recognized the visions of Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, and others, provided not only a fertile field from which the images of Revelation have been harvested, but also a genre, that is, a community or family of literature whose members are related to each other in style and therefore in the expectations evoked in the readers. And so we might be helped to understand that rather than telling us when we will be raptured or when the Antichrist appears or whether there will be a ten-nation European confederation in the last days, rather the book is interested in telling us how the hopes of the ancient prophets are being fulfilled and also how the grand narrative of the Bible is working its way to its conclusion. That leads me to one more important point. The title of the book, Revelation, should interest us. The Greek word for revelation is the word apocalypses. Now in this, there's probably some confusion. Many of us are aware that the phrase apocalyptic literature is a type of literature found in the ancient world that made use of dramatic and even grotesque images. Furthermore, it carries the idea of the end of the world. And if you've ever heard someone say that what's happening, let's say, in the Middle East sounds apocalyptic, we mean that there is so much horror going on, it it feels like the end of the world. And for many of us, that's what apocalyptic actually means. And in truth, we don't have to read Revelation long before we encounter, well, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, bringing everything from conquest, to to war, to famine, and then to death. We read of the seven bowls of wrath poured out onto the earth, producing painful sores on people, the sea being turned into blood, and the sun scorching people so that they cry out in their agony. We read of the beast, and then of the false prophet, and of the prostitute of Babylon who sits on a beast and is drunk with the blood of the saints. Now, images like this fill us with a dread of what might be happening next. But long before we dive into what this means, we do well to reconsider our word apocalypsis. The Greek word simply means the removal of a veil so that we can see what lies behind. In Matthew 10, verse 26, Jesus tells of a time when all that is now covered will be revealed. And so that's what Revelation does. It lifts the cover of something that is now to be revealed. Now, isn't that surprising? Revelation reveals, not conceals. Too many of us have thought of this book as containing nothing but mysteries that no one will understand until Christ returns. Now, I don't want to give the impression that we're going to understand everything in this book but for the very purpose of this book is to roll back the curtain and see the formation of a new heaven and a new earth and the fulfillment of all the longings of the people of God. I think that when Revelation was first read by by the seven churches that are now in what is now the nation of Turkey, that when those first Christians read it, they felt like the veil had been lifted and they saw something of what God was up to. They weren't mystified. They were enlightened, for the veil had been lifted. And in the end, Christians must see a grand drama, starting with the one glorious God, moving from this sin-cursed creation to a new creation, when the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea.
0: John, this has been a great introduction to this study, from creation to creation. I want to go back a little bit, though, to where you talked about apocalypsis, uh, that word. You know, it brings fear into so many people's hearts. It stops us from actually diving in. We have all these images from our generation of helicopters and rockets and all these types of things, but it really is contrary to the meaning of the word.
1: Yeah, I I do think that, uh, you know, for myself, uh, Ben, I think you and I have discussed this, um, and that... I myself felt hesitant about dealing with this book simply because I know that there'll be disagreements from the very outset. And I want to be respectful and kind towards those, but I think that the key to understanding Revelation is to be fully immersed in the rest of our Bible. The more that we know our Bible, the more we are keyed and ready for this book. And in fact, a knowledge of the Bible will then have this marvelous effect that this book kind of opens up a door to us to help us to see the meaning of the whole.
0: Thanks John. We're looking forward to the study right here on back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Today there are 1.6 billion websites on how to get rich quick. I'm I'm only joking. You know, but our TVs promise that a newer car, a colder drink, or a bigger house will be just the ticket to bring joy. But if money were the key to happiness, we'd be the happiest culture in history. Instead, we access more psychologists, lawyers, and antidepressants than any previous generation. So what makes life rich? Well, this month, Phil Calloway uncovers some answers in the new Laugh-Again booklet, Five Steps to Making Life Rich. Money is a blessing when held in our hands, but never in our hearts. To request your copy of the booklet, Five Steps to Making Life Rich, as our free gift during the month of May, visit us online at backtothebible.ca or simply give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.